Yes, he's enough for me individually. Yes, he's enough for the church. But is he really enough for the world out there? And if he is, then what is our particular role as the church, as believers? What is our role in that? And so, yes, this is going to be one of those out-of-our-comfort-zone sermons, because I know you're already thinking, oh, Jason, we get it. You want us to go and tell people about Jesus? And uh, I don't know how to do that. I get all nervous, get all tongue-tied, and I, I never know what to say. And people are going to think I'm weird, one of those super spiritual type of Christians, and they're never going to talk to me again. And we kind of psych ourselves out before we even get out of bed. But just consider one more question before we read the final text of this book. And the question is this. What is it about Jesus that the Apostle Paul would go so far as to be thrown into prison multiple times, be flogged many, many times, be reviled pretty much wherever he went, yet he persevered in telling the world about Jesus? Or again, as part of our Mission Sunday last Sunday, what is it about Jesus that Joe and Balkus would give up their, their normal lives to go and minister to the people in Honduras, especially the children? And I'm sure that they would be the first ones to say, there's nothing special about them, but something very, very special about Jesus. And it's this very mysterious thing about Jesus that has caused thousands and thousands of Christians throughout the centuries to even die for their faith in proclaiming proclaiming him. And so what is this mysterious thing about Jesus that would cause Christians to do this? So read the text with me, and then I will show you on the other side. We're going to read from uh, chapter 4, verse 2, right through to the end of the letter. Uh, We won't focus on everything uh, to the end of the letter. In fact, we're just focusing on on a couple of verses, four uh, four verses. But uh, I just want us to be able to say, yes, we went through the whole book. We read every single verse in the whole book. Uh, So the Bibles are in front of you, or jump onto your Bible app, or, or if you can see the screen, follow along. Here we go. Paul says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the word. And here's what we're going to focus on, to declare the mystery of Christ, this mysterious thing about Jesus. And he says, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And now what he does right through to the end of the letter is he just sends greetings from from people who are with him, people who have given up their lives, so to speak, to declare this mysterious thing about Jesus. Verse 7, he says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I I have sent him to you for this very person that you may know how we are. And that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, not that Jesus, and Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. 
always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Heropolis. Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea, which many argue is the book of Ephesians. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So we're going to be talking about this great mystery around Jesus, this mysterious thing about him that Paul says he has got him in prison for declaring it. And like I said, thousands and thousands of Christians around the world throughout the centuries have been imprisoned or even killed for declaring this, this great mystery around Christ. Now, some would argue that that is not the greatest mystery. And out of my curiosity, I jumped onto Google and I just simply typed in, what is the greatest mysteries in the world? I'll give you the top four. Number one, who killed JFK? Still mystery around there. Number two, are there really aliens? When people get abducted, is it really true stories? Number three, what's up with the Bermuda Triangle? Which is kind of scary because that's just around the corner from us. Number four, why do women say fine when clearly they are not? <laughs> that, was, that was a joke. Sorry. But thank goodness for us and for the world, the greatest mystery of eternal importance, the greatest mystery of eternal importance and eternal ramifications has been revealed to us. If you remember chapter 1 of verse 27, Paul told us very, very clearly, Christ in you, the hope of glory is the greatest mystery. The assurance of you being in glory one day in a glorified state with your heavenly Father is not you. No matter how good you think you are, the Bible very clearly tells us, no, we're bad, we are sinners. Our only hope is the goodness of Jesus on behalf of us before his heavenly Father. Your hope is not in, the good, in your good works outweighing your bad works. Because again, the Bible very clearly tells us our good works or our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before him. No, our hope is in the work of Jesus on your behalf with his righteousness accredited to us. And Paul says this mysterious hope is sealed in you through the presence of Jesus in your life by faith in him alone. That's the amazing news, Sunrise. That's the good news. Our hope of knowing God, our hope of being right with God, our hope of ultimately being with God is the finished work of Jesus and his presence within our lives by faith. And it's a mystery that so desperately needs to be declared to this world, that so desperately needs to be reconciled to God a world that so desperately needs to be made right with God. The hope of Cayman is not our booming tourism industry or the fact that we're a tax-neutral zone, but it is the finished work of Jesus and his presence in us, over us, 
and ultimately through us. It's, it's the hope of roughly two billion people on this planet who have never heard the gospel. That equates to about 6,700 different people groups, ethnic groups, who have never heard this great news. It's this glorious mystery that has caused me and my family to declare that we are missionaries. We are missionaries before I am a pastor. I am a missionary with my sole purpose, our sole purpose of declaring this good news to the world. It's the very reason why we are here. This world needs hope, and the mystery of this hope has been revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And I'm convinced that every single one of us, every single Christian can declare this mystery of Christ. I think it is the task of the church, those of us who have this mystery residing in us and this mystery that has been revealed to us, it's our task, it's our responsibility to declare it in the places and the spaces where God has placed us. But it's not going to be easy. But the Apostle Paul here gives us three principles that can help us with this. Have a look at this, and you can see it on the flip side of your bulletins. We can declare the mystery of Christ, number one, through steadfast prayer, number two, through wise living, and number three, through gracious speech. So here we go. Point number one, we can declare the mystery of Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory, through steadfast prayer. So before you and I have even taken a step out there into the world, we are to be praying. We are to be saturated in prayer. We need to persevere in prayer. Or another translation puts it, we are to be devoted to prayer. And Paul highlights two aspects of the steadfast prayer. First, this inward focus of prayer. Look at verse 2 again. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So this is the the inward personal prayer of protection. Paul says we are to be watchful in our prayers. What are we to be watchful of? What are we to be alert for? Again, by way of reminder, remember the the historical context of this church in Colossus, that they were being infiltrated by all of these false teachers who were were trying to lead them astray with their false doctrines and their false uh, philosophies from Jesus as their sole hope of glory. The most notorious bunch were the Gnostics. And remember, Gnosticism simply means to be in the know. And so they believed that they had all divine knowledge on all things related to God and all things related to salvation. And they didn't fully accept the divinity of Jesus. They had what I call a Jesus plus theology. Jesus plus whatever we say. Jesus plus doing this. Jesus plus worshiping that equals salvation. Whereas the gospel very clearly tells us Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. So they were going around saying, you Christians are so narrow-minded, you're so arrogant just to believe that all you need is Jesus. No, and remember in chapter 2 they said it's Jesus plus the worship of angels, Jesus plus observing certain rituals and festivals or moon worship and other things like that. And Paul is saying, no, no, you need to be vigilant of these false doctrines by taking everything to God in prayer praying for protection, that you're not influenced by these things. Unfortunately, there's nothing new. Today we're living in a very much a post-Christian and a post-church world, which means that our our Christian doctrines and and our ethics and our values no longer have the same influence that they used to have on culture, that they used to have on society. 
The postmodern culture says, again, you Christians, you're so narrow-minded. How can it just be Jesus? We no longer view your values and your principles as normative. Because truth has evolved, people. Truth is now relative. It's no longer absolute. Essentially, what they're doing is making truth easier, which is very attractive to our culture. Because they're saying, you can be and you can do anything you want. However you feel, you just go for it. Whatever you desire, you can be that, you can do that. You want this sexual orientation, you want that sexual identity, or you want to believe in this so you can live like that, or you want to do this and do that, then that's fine. Why? Because truth is relative. Essentially, they're saying you are the ultimate authority in determining what is true in this life. And when you put that mindset and that kind of power in a world that's made up of sinners, then you get the world that we're living in. But like I said, it's, it's oh so attractive. But it will, and it is, imploding on itself. They think relativistic truth will set people free. No. All you have to do is watch Sky News and CNN to tell you that it's not happening. It's not working. That's why Paul says, be steadfast in prayer and watchful in it. So Sunrise, what is attempting to take your eyes off Jesus as your hope of glory? What is dulling your senses to Jesus and, and attracting you to another worldview, another mindset, or another purpose, or uh, another purpose in life, or meaning in life, or another way of living? Pray for discernment and pray for the resolve to remain grounded in Jesus as your soul, hope, and life. Then Paul shifts from this inward prayer of protection and vigilance to more of an outward prayer of mission and, pro and proclaiming the gospel, this hope that we have. So in other words, we're not to go into this, this kind of like bomb shelter mentality where we're like, okay, let's just bunker down and huddle together and just wait for Jesus to come back and, and, and fetch us. What we get here is an example of what it means to be on mission with Jesus in this world. Because this world needs hope and that hope is Jesus. So look at verse 3, it says... At the same time, at the same time that you're praying for this protection, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So this is the not so easy part. This is the part where we like to bring out the old St. Francis of Assisi statement that says, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. You heard that one before? Now, we're not entirely sure if St. Francis actually even said that, but B, you'll, you won't even find that in the Bible. I mean, just the context of this passage, Paul says, we need to declare the mystery of Christ. We need to make it clear, which is, he says, which is how we ought to speak. Now, I am all for living out your Christian faith, but you need to be able to make it clear why you're living that way. No one, no one is going to guess by the way you live, like, oh, I, I get it now. I get why they're living like that, because I can suddenly see you know, Jesus died on the cross for them. They're not going to see that by your actions. We need to declare it. We need to make it clear to them. And I know this is where we begin to feel pressure, because you, you're thinking, Jason, you have no idea. If I mention the name Jesus in the workplace, my workplace, all chaos will break loose, or you don't know what my husband is like, or my wife is like, or, or my group of friends, what they are like. And I'm saying I, I get it, because I, I am an introvert by, by nature. 
I mean, I, yes, I, I love to preach and teach because I get to say what I want to say and then I get to sit down and be quiet. But just hang in there, hang in there for a second because what is the text actually saying here? He's saying pray. Pray that God may open to us a door for the word. So here's what I want to, uh, what I want to do for this part. I want to share a real life story to show that God does this. That God does open doors, and then I'll put some Bible underneath it to give it some authority. The story is about a pastor by the name of Duncan Campbell in 1952. Duncan was invited to a missions conference uh, somewhere in Northern Ireland, and he was supposed to preach on the second day of the conference, but during the first day as he was preaching, uh, he sensed from the Holy Spirit, I don't know how, he doesn't tell us exactly how he heard from the Holy Spirit, which I'm glad because then we'd all want to box the Holy Spirit in. But he senses from the Holy Spirit this word, Bernaray. Now, Bernaray was one of a few islands just west of Scotland. Uh, it's a very small island, and so he just simply ignored it, and he continued praying. And then the name Bernaray came to mind again, and he ignored it, and then a, a third time. So Campbell then turned to the chairman and whispered to him, Brother, uh, you'll need to excuse me. The Holy Spirit has just told me that I'm to go to Bernaray. Now, if you are uh, the organizer of an event and your keynote speaker suddenly turns to you and says that, that's like the worst news in the whole world. So the chairman objected mildly and said, um, you are the speaker tomorrow. But the article goes on to say, but nothing could stop him. He knew the Spirit had spoken. Now, he had never been there before. He didn't know anyone there, so he simply packed two of his bags full of clothes and went off to the airport and discovered that there were no direct flights there. So he paid for a ticket to fly to the closest island to Bernaray. Then when he landed, he, went, he made his way down to the harbor and discovered that there were no commercial boat rides to the island because hardly ever, anyone ever went there or lived there. Now, if you were in his shoes, what would you be thinking at this point? Maybe it was a supper that I had last night, because maybe I wasn't hearing the Holy Spirit, or, you know, or, you know maybe this is, not, this is not a door that he's opened. But the story goes on and says that he stumbled across a fisherman and began asking the fisherman about this island. Finally, the fisherman agreed to take him for a small fee, and Campbell just happened to have the exact amount of money in his wallet. He then gets dropped off on the shore of Bernerain and climbs up a bluff and discovers a farmer plowing his field. He says to the farmer, please go to the nearest pastor and tell him Duncan Campbell has arrived. <laughs> the farmer responded, uh, we don't have a minister for the church now. He said, do you have elders, Campbell asked. Yes. All right, go to the nearest elder and tell him Duncan Campbell has arrived. The farmer rather with a puzzled look on his face, started off across the field as Campbell rested on his suitcases. After a while, the farmer returned and said, uh, the elder was expecting you. He has a place ready for you. He has announced the meetings begin at 9 o'clock tonight. You see, while Campbell was at the conference in Northern Ireland three days earlier, this elder had spent the day praying in his barn for God to send revival to the island. He knew in his heart, the article says, that God was going to send Duncan Campbell, who was being used in, a, in mighty ways in revivals in other parts of Scotland. 
He was so sure that he would be there in three days that he made all the arrangements to use the local church and had announced the services. The article finishes off and says, that great revival came to the island of Bernaray and a great door for the word was opened that no man could shut because God opened it. How amazing is that? One faithful little elder in his barn, praying, persevering in his prayer, trusting the Lord to bring a revival to his little island. And the Lord opens the door. The book of Acts also tells us amazing stories of, of Paul's missionary journeys, of, of how people came to faith in Jesus. And we can argue and go, oh, well, that's just Paul. Paul was just this amazingly gifted speaker, and you know, he could convince people. But Paul and Barnabas, they make their way back to their uh, original church in Antioch to go and tell the church of, of, all, um, of all that had happened on their mission trip. And this is how Luke sums it up for us, Acts 14, verse 27. He says, they, Paul and Barnabas, declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Do you see that? Do you see how radically God-centered that is? That God opened the door. Now, for an introvert like me, that gives me incredible confidence. That gives me incredible assurance. Now, some people read a verse like that and go, well, if God's going to do it all, if God's going to open the doors, then why pray and why go? Because of the first part of that verse, it says, they declared all that God had done with them or through them. You see, it's God. God has ordained that we, as his church, we get to be on mission with him. We get to partner. Think about this. We get to, to partner with God Almighty in the salvation of people's lives. But it's not easy, sunrise. It doesn't always result in revival. Paul says this. It is on account of declaring the mystery of Christ that he is in chains. But yet it never stopped him. It never stopped him. Prison after prison, flogging after flogging, it never stopped it, and it should never stop us. Because here's why, and, and, and again, I, I, I just talk, but I, I really need Jesus to open our eyes to this and open our hearts to this. We get to partner with the sovereign Savior of the world in the salvation of people's lives in their reconciliation back to the creator of the universe, so much so that they get to call him father like you and I. Jesus, let that land on us. The other argument or objection is that people say, oh, I just I don't know what to say. You know, and, and my wife gave me great advice on this because she knows me very well. She said, Jason, don't go all technical on the people. Like, don't start talking about propitiation and, and this and justification. She just, just, just share your story and wrap it in the gospel. I thought, well, that's, that's brilliant. So think about your life in three parts. Who was I before Jesus saved me? Just tell the people, what, what were you like before Jesus saved you? What was your mindset like? What, were, what was your lifestyle like? And then number two, how did Jesus save you? Just tell them the story. Tell them, wrap the gospel in that moment, what it meant for you and how you believed in what Jesus did on the cross for you. And then number three, who am I now because of Jesus? How has he changed your life? How has he changed your mindset? 
For some of you, maybe you know, your lifestyle hasn't really changed all that much. But maybe for others of you, it was like, hey, me and the devil. Now it's like, hey, me and Jesus. We're on mission together. So how has he changed you? But what is the key to this? Again, a quote from this story that I just shared with you. It says this, When God has people who prevail in prayer and people who know how to recognize the voice of the Spirit and obey without question, he says there is no limit to what God can do. Now, I just want to say that there is no limit to what God can do anyway, whether we pray or not. But here's the point that he's making. He's saying that we get, we have the privilege of partnering with God in this through prayer. So just before we move on, three things. Number one, would you rest in the truth that God will open the right doors for the gospel? Number two, would you take up your responsibility just to pray earnestly for those doors to open? And then number three, would you just simply share your story wrapped in the gospel? But here's the thing. Gospel proclamation without gospel demonstration is hypocrisy. So the next principle Paul gives us is this, point number two. We can declare the mystery of Christ through wise living. Uh, just a quick note on the side. Uh, these next two points are really quick. So if you thought, oh, that's, you just finished the, the first one. It's long. These two are short and, and stabby. Okay, so here we go. Firstly, our conduct. Look at verse 5. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. So we are to conduct ourselves wisely amongst those outside of the Christian faith. So wherever you go, wherever you find yourself, in the places and the spaces where God has put you, you know, at home, at work, with friends, at the shops, you know, Kirk's, Foster's on the highway, wherever there might be unbelievers, we are to be wise, he says, in how we go about relating, responding, reacting, engaging with people. He says, and, and the way we walk in wisdom, Paul says, is by making the best use of the time. And I find that a very fascinating statement. How you make use of your time, he says, determines whether you are being foolish or wise. Paul expands on this to the Ephesians. Ephesians 5.15, he says, Look carefully then how you walk or conduct yourself, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand, rather, the contrast, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So here's how I see what Paul is saying. If you use your time here on earth for evil, you will be unwise or foolish, and therefore you will reap the consequences of unwise decisions and evil decisions. But if you use your time to understand, to grapple with, to understand what God's will is, revealed will here is, you will be wise, he says, and therefore you will experience wise and godly repercussions on your life. So let's make it even clearer then. What is God's will? What is God's will? If we, if we look at it within the context of this passage that we're looking at, he tells us to declare the mystery of Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory. God's will is he wants to reconcile sinners to himself. And so the question we often ask, and it's a good question, is what is God's will for my life? The first thing you do is you chop that question in half and you just ask, what is God's will? And we see from his word he wants to reconcile sinners to himself. And so therefore, then, what is God's will for my life? Well, we then get to partner with him in doing that. 
So walking wisely towards unbelievers has, as a foundational motive to it, a way of living that will draw unbelievers to him. He wants us to live in such a way that will attract unbelievers to him. And so what does that look like? To bring someone to Christ to the way you live means we have to be Christ-like. We have to be full of grace, we have to be full of mercy, we have to be full of love, we have to be full of truth, His truth, not postmodern truth, His truth. And so I'm thinking, well, that's impossible. That's impossible. How are you going to wake up tomorrow morning and go, I'm going to be like Jesus today. Every moment of this day, I'm going to be exactly like Jesus, and then you walk into that boardroom. How are you going to do it? It's impossible except for one amazing, mysterious truth that has been revealed. Christ in you. Christ in you is going to help you grow in becoming more and more like him, more and more Christ-like in your everyday life. So that refers to our conduct, but what about our speech? The last way we declare the mystery of Christ is through gracious speech. Look at verse 6. He says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So the way you are to respond and interact with those outside of the faith in particular is is to make sure that our conversations or the questions we ask or the, the answers we give, he says, are always gracious and seasoned with salt. And we know what salt does, right? Salt um, makes us thirsty. Salt adds flavor to food. Uh, salt even purifies. And Paul is saying, yes. That's what our conversations must be like. It must uh, encapsulate all of those things. Our speech and our conduct needs to leave a taste and a thirst for Jesus in their lives. Again, I think, well, how? How? John Piper has a very refreshing answer on this. Have a look at this. It's quite a long quote, but I just thought it was, it's just so good. He says, I think the answer is simply to spend every is to spend time every day reminding yourself from Scripture why the gospel tastes good to you. Some of us who have been Christians for a long time begin to neglect the crucial business of enjoying Christ. Then an opportunity comes along to commend him, to commend Jesus to someone, and we realize that all of the reasons he is wonderful have been neglected, and the keenness of our own taste buds has grown very dull. He says, it's hard to salt your speech with the deliciousness of Jesus when you haven't been enjoying the taste yourself. I thought, well, it's a good answer. Because here's the thing, I love cake. Um, and over the, the, the years, I, I, you know, I get into these friendly banter or debates with my friends on you know, which coffee shops have the best cheesecake or the best chocolate cake, and starting over here on the island too. You know, and, and I say, no, no, you've got to go to this coffee shop. They officially now have the best cheesecake in town. And, uh, you know, and I keep going back there because I just I love the taste of that cheesecake. So in the same way, how can my speech be full of grace and salt? I keep going back to enjoy Jesus. Day after day. Time after time. How do you know someone has had garlic the night before? It's very evident on their breath. And so I just want to say right now, I apologize to anyone I have prayed for on a Sunday morning, and I've had garlic the night before. But how do you know a person loves and follows Jesus? Because he's always in their speech. 
or his truth or his gospel is always shaping what they say or how they say things. The question, Sunrise, are you enjoying the deliciousness of Jesus yourself? Paul said it another way in chapter 3, verse 16, again by way of reminder. says this in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. You see, they said, let the gospel, let the words of Christ dwell in you richly. To dwell means to make its home. And he says, let it do this richly. Let it bring a richness to your life. Spiritually rich food is good for you. It will affect the way you interact and respond to people, especially those outside of the faith. And also what we need to see there is that it results in wisdom. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. In other words, he's saying you'll be able to teach, you'll be able to caution, you'll be able to encourage people wisely. Why? Because you are feasting on the spiritually rich food of his word or his gospel. And this will help with the main purpose for having salty and gracious speech. Look at verse 6 again. He says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Here comes the purpose. So that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You answer people with salty and gracious speech because it's coming from the spiritually rich source of the gospel. Peter says it this way, 1 Peter 3.15. He says, But in your hearts... Honor Christ, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And that gentleness and respect is like the salt and grace. But how are you going to be prepared to do that? How are you going to be prepared to give a reason for this hope that is in you? By dwelling in the reason for the hope that is in you. By dwelling in Jesus. The more you dwell, the more we dwell in Jesus, the more evident that hope becomes. The more evident that hope becomes, the more likely people will ask you for the reason why you have it. And they will ask. Because people are attracted to hope. Everyone needs hope. Hope gives you a reason for living. Hope gives you meaning. Hope gives you purpose. And Jesus is the ultimate reason. Jesus is the ultimate purpose for life because he created it and he's redeeming it. So two hard questions before I finish off. Number one, the reason why we are not excited about declaring the mystery of Christ is it because we're not enjoying the deliciousness of Jesus? What is attempting to satisfy your taste buds? What is attempting to satisfy your spiritual yearnings apart from Jesus? Number two, the reason why people are not asking us for the hope that is in us, the reason for the hope that is in us, is it because our hope in Jesus has grown dull? Or is it because we're hoping in someone or something else? And if I can just be frank, If it is something or someone else, it will disappoint you. Because it's not Jesus. It's not the sovereign Savior and Lord of this world. So here's the thing, sunrise, and then I'm done. We can all declare the mystery of Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory, if we ourselves are fueling our hope in Jesus. 
And the way we do that, Paul tells us, is through steadfast prayer and by being in his word. The moment our hope in Jesus begins to weaken, the moment our hope in Jesus begins to wane, the first thing that goes out the window is our speech and our conduct. And then we're labeled hypocrites. Because our speech and our conduct is simply the fruit of what's going on in here. What's going on in our inner man is simply the fruit of what we are hoping in. So fuel your hope in Jesus with steadfast prayer and through his word so that when God opens those doors, and he will, when he opens those doors, it's not met with hypocrisy or fear, but rather confident joy in the hope of the world because he's your hope. And if he's our hope, then he definitely is enough for this world to hope in. My prayer for us, Sunrise, as we journey together, is that we would continue to be an ever-increasing, radically Jesus-centered church. The Jesus of this Bible. The Jesus that we have seen in the book of Colossians. Jesus, the hope of glory. Jesus, the hope of this world, that he would stir so much in our hearts, that he would grab our hearts so much so that our speech is seasoned with salt and graciousness, that we're not hypocrites in our conduct, but that we simply shine him everywhere we go because he is in us as our hope of glory. Amen. Won't you pray with me and then we'll sing one last song together. Father, thank you for this amazing journey through the book of Colossians. Thank you that we have seen incredible things about you and your son in particular. That he is the all-sufficient one. That he is all that we need. And that he is in us, residing in us as our hope, as the guarantee of being with you in glory one day. And so I'm asking you right now, would that truth alone just drop deep down into our hearts, but would it bubble out of us in a way that attracts those who don't know you, Jesus, as their Lord and Savior? Would you use us to draw them to you, to believe in you? Would you use this faith family to make an incredibly big impact on this island and in the other places and spaces that you lead us to? We trust in you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.